And so I learned while researching this book that Bill Clinton's presidential legacy is one of great contradictions, especially regarding women. In the public sphere, he pursued several women-friendly policies. He signed the Family and Medical Leave Act, appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court, and increased child care subsidies by $4 billion. In the private sphere, however, Clinton pursued several women, period. In short, Bill Clinton's attitudes towards women will be a source of controversy for decades to come and a highly profitable subject for a biography. So why, Paige, are you threatening to leave me if I submit the final draft of my book, Clinton is a Girl's Best Friend, to my publisher? Let's start with the title. How about Bill Clinton, Predator-in-Chief? I'm not sure my scholarship supports that thesis, dear. Then maybe you should reevaluate your scholarship, dear. It might lead you to be more critical of so-called feminists who called Monica Lewinsky the hot mess in the blue dress. Goodness! Who made such a rude comment? Me! Back in 1998. For years, I attacked chauvinists for blaming victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault, then indulged in the same exact slut-shaming when a pro-choice president was caught exploiting his privileges and position. But Paige, beloved, politics is about compromise. Compromise? More like betrayal. Daphne, you find a way to demonize Democratic women for enabling toxic masculinity, or you can hire an escort to cosplay as Mamie Eisenhower tonight. But doesn't that make you no better than the evangelists who vote for Donald Trump in exchange for anti-abortion judges? Hell no. I have the decency to admit I'm a hypocrite. Speaking of titles, how about this one? Mrs. Dr. Dabney Nair? Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for People Who Can't Afford Hamilton. Today, President 42, Bill Clinton. We continue to thank you for your continued interest and ears. For DB Comedy Presents The Electables, we are coming up to the end of all of the presidents that America has had up until this moment. But we're not quite there yet, and any help that you can give us, or any thanks you would like to give us, would be appreciated. If you haven't, please subscribe to DB Comedy Presents The Electables on whatever marketplace you are listening to this podcast. Also, don't forget to like and recommend so more folks can listen. If you like what you hear, please leave us a tip or a donation, if you will. Go to fracturedatlas.org and look up DB Comedy. Fractured Atlas is our fiscal sponsor. Any tip or donation you leave us is tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. Please keep supporting us because we are plotting life beyond the presidents and we'd like you to keep listening. Thank you. Let's start with a cold open. I'm Joe. I'm Paul. I'm Sandy. I'm Tommy. And I'm Patrick. I'm Chelsea. McCray. 
James McCray. <laughs> yeah, we got a 007 agent on the podcast this time. Apparently, yeah. I've I got forgot. a license to teach. Damn straight I do. And for this era, we're talking Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. Uh, he will always be Remington Steele to me. But... So you young you young whippersnappers was Clinton the first president of whom, of whom you were ever aware? Oh yes. yeah, I have vague memories of H. W. Bush, um, but it not much. That's, those are the best kind of memories yeah. about George <laughs> H. W. Bush. I mean, I think the same. Can be I don't know that anyone has anything else of memory, but vague memories of George H. W. Bush, but. Um, I, I do have some vague, weird memories of, like, the end of the Soviet Union being on the radio when I was being pulled along in a car seat and something about, oh, yeah, there's this George Bush fellow out there. It's, pos- it's possible it was memories from early in the Clinton administration referencing George H.W. Bush as the former president. But um, I, I do remember in particular in second grade, uh, we had an assignment to write the president's name. Um, and I was just like, well, it's Bill Clinton. And my mother's like, well, if you want to be real fancy, you would write William Jefferson Clinton. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what I did. Or if your parents didn't like him, you could have written Slick Willie Clinton. Oh. Or oh, Hillary's oh, husband. Teflon Kid Clinton. So you millennials, my question is, do you think that becoming aware of America as a political entity and a democracy with the president as head of state. Having a president at the time who was so controversial and whose personal peccadilloes so dominated the headlines, do you think it gave you less respect for the office or less faith in democracy or made you cynical at a young age? I had no idea what was going on. I think it inert... You know, I hate to speak totally generationally obviously people are are very different um and, and most people are very different from me at the very least but um <laughs> they uh i think it inured me to the idea that that controversy regarding the president was simply and and especially regarding respect for the president was simply the norm that that you know, people would would question the president. People would question his morals, his motives, um, and that in my entire politically aware life, that's never not been true, except for possibly like the six months after nine eleven. Mm. Or we'll get to the. Yeah. I guess I guess that's about what I would say is like, you know, we were. I don't, I don't want to speak for the other two, but we were raised by you know baby boomers who had watched Kennedy get shot and then Nixon betray the system. So as far as we were concerned, much worse stuff had already happened. And then we were very quickly about to learn that like something the president did in his personal time was way not the worst thing that could happen. Yeah, I feel uh, slightly older, millennial, not 87 up in here. So I have the benefit of wisdom over these whippersnappers. Uh, I know I felt like the Clinton administration was a pretty smooth ride as far as the presidency to grow up in. Mm. Uh, you know, not a lot was for super, me. Yeah, you know, lot, I, as as a straight white man, not a lot was terrible for me. Uh, 
When has that I not was, been true? I mean, that's yeah. That's I guess that's another. That is a, a point though. Like that that politics is ephemeral. That's something I definitely learned. Like yeah. people are like, like, all these opinions like about it, it, stuff. it really didn't matter what anyone was talking about. Right. But 90s. like life continued to go on as it had. And it like, you know, and I remember like, you know, my, my parents who were strong Democrats were just like, Oh my gosh, can you believe that the country elected George W. Bush? And like, this guy's an idiot. And it was yeah. like, eh, <laughs> nothing changed. Like who cares? Um, Being born in 1987, I became aware of the existence of politics during the Clinton years. Suddenly, discussion of the president's antics were all over the TV. And as a young smartass, I, of course, had to give my own two cents on the whole situation. But wouldn't you know it, most comedy clubs aren't super keen on letting an 11-year-old do a tight five past his bedtime. Being on an army base in Germany at the time certainly didn't help either. Uh, but now that I have my own platform that no one can kick me off of, unless I've really misread my contract, here are some of my vintage observations on the Clinton administration from the time. Hey, all right. Thanks for coming out on a school night. <laughs> uh, I know, right? They don't even let you forget about school the few hours you don't have to be there. Uh, you know, I was walking through the cafeteria the other day, and they switched us over to those bags of milk. You know, the those amorphous sacks that get the jab with a straw, like the lamest Capri Sun. They told us it's about eliminating waste. Yeah, right. They just added a bunch of middle schoolers' water balloons full of milk. Doesn't take an AP class to see how that'll end. Have you guys been uh, been checking out this internet? It is wild. You know, the free flow of information unconstrained by having to be useful or productive. Like my butt after chili day at the cafeteria. <clears throat> so I, I went to AOL and I, I downloaded some jokes about the internet. Your top, top ten list. The best form of comedy. Top ten problems with AOL. Number ten. AOL is so slow. And I'll let you know the punchline when it finishes loading. Uh, I was watching Leno last night, and then did you hear about this? Did, did you see this? Uh, President Clinton has gotten himself into some kind of trouble. Something about a blue dress. Something about this guy, Janet Reno. Uh, I, I don't I don't know. No one wants to actually tell me what happened. Uh, it seems like the president is having some trouble defining what the word is means. And Bill, I get it. I get it. English isn't my best subject either. But hey, if you don't ask, they won't tell. Am I right? I'm asking you, am I right? Because I don't think I am. That, that sounds like what Don't Ask, Don't Tell is, though, doesn't it? People keep changing the subject about it. Maybe I'm the one they don't want to tell. But, uh, you know, what's the deal uh, with the president and uh, the cigar? <laughs> I'm serious, folks. Let him mentioned it, and, and no one will explain the context. I'm working on the theory that maybe the first lady doesn't want him smoking anymore. Maybe he got the ashes on her blue dress. I, I don't know. If you have any more theories, you know, hit me up on AIM. Uh, just leave your ASL. Or you can text me, but only after 9. I'm on the family plan. Anyways, that's my time. You've been a great audience. And, and remember, what's up? So...
if you're going to kind of evaluate the Bill Clinton presidency, it, it's it's really hard because, you know, we've talked about like the limits of presidential power. Bill Clinton had the fortune to rule the United States, rule to rule? Rule the United States at the time of its greatest global hegemony. And one of its edit one of its times of highest economic prosperity domestically. Yep. On the other hand, he probably didn't do a lot to arrest the United States's having to pay the price for some of these other upheavals that would come along. Whether or not he could have actually done anything about any of those things, either that you know, was he responsible for the United States doing great? I would argue. Probably not that much. Was he responsible for the fall or the problems that the United States faced in the early 2000s? I'd also argue probably wasn't a whole lot he could do about any of those things. Um, Isn't that the classic story of the whole baby boomer generation of which Clinton is the first president we have? They just showed up at the right time, took credit for what happened, ruined everything and left the rest of us to pick up the pieces. Well, and so that, well, like, I don't... Proudly that, brought to you by Gen X and millennials. Right, on the way to being ruined. Totally rad. Um, I was just going to say, James, you something you said really got my brain going, and I'm going to repeat it so that I can get back on the train of thought that I was on. You said that Clinton ruled the United States, and I laughed, but after I laughed, I actually started to think about it a little bit more because that was something that Clinton, we know because he said so himself, really struggled with, right? He wanted to be a big president. We've talked a lot about the kind of stretching of presidential power many times throughout this podcast, right? See TR, see FDR, see Lyndon Johnson, right? Like go back and listen to those. And Clinton really wanted to have an opportunity to step into big presidential power. And he often lamented that he was not, that, that, the, cold, that the Cold World had ended, right? Like, um, and one of the- are in 1914 thinking like, oh my gosh, I wish I had been president right now and I could have led the country through the First World War. Right. And, 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 and he just wasn't there at the time. And, and yeah, you know, I'm sure- Maybe Clinton's like, gosh, shoot, if I hadn't run in 92 and had run in 96 and and then I would have been there when 9-11 happened and been able to lead the country through that, that could have been my my big moment. But he he doesn't get one because it's it's more or less smooth sailing throughout right. his presidency. And and we can come back to this. But to me, because I think we really should, it's it's a really nice sort of like bow on top of or cherry on top of everything we've talked about previously in this podcast. But because he was struggling so much to find a sort of presidential identity, he started reading a lot of biographies of presidents. And he saw a little bit of his own situation in Harry Truman with like demobilization, but right, Truman gets the Cold War dropped in his lap. So like it doesn't, it doesn't super fit, maybe like 1946 Harry Truman, but but Clinton eventually fancies himself as a TR figure, which is super interesting. And I feel like we should unpack 
we don't have to do it now. No, yeah, to which to the two things I will also add is one, knowing that Clinton as a Democrat was coming in at a time when Democrats were just getting their asses handed to them on the regular basis on the presidential level and trying to figure out how not to get that done. And speaking of seeds of the 21st century, the rise of the conservatism and it starts to mutate or metastasize, depending on your the word you want to choose, into whatever it is at the time of this recording, 2023. Hey, Joe, I know you're trying to make a point here, but I'm just, I just <laughs> think we should circle back to, it's a shame Clinton didn't wait until after we had made this podcast, because then he would have saved himself so much time reading biographies. He could have just listened to us. You know... Can I start our uh, delve into the Clinton backstory? With uh, the I was release? about to say, let's yes. get into the, the timeline, please. Okay, here's my stupid and provocative question. My first stupid and provocative question <laughs> for the podcast. Did Bill Clinton run for president as a way of showing up Jimmy Carter for costing <laughs> him re-election as Arkansas governor in 1980? I thought you were going to ask if he did it to impress his absent dad. Oh, I thought you were going to say, did he do it to make Hillary mad? I thought we were going to say, did he do it to impress Jodie Foster? But I think I'm thinking of a different thing. <laughs> I asked that. And first, to get the conversation rolling, and you all did ask some questions about one of the most psychologically reduced presidents and probably psychologically com complex presidents of our lifetime. I'm going to say no, just because <laughs> I don't. Bill Clinton runs for president because he thinks he's a great man. And I, I think that that is the beginning and short of it. Like his conception of self transcends ideology, transcends party. He sees himself as naturally the smartest person in the room not just the smartest, right? The most, like, um, I don't want to use the word suave, but like the most in control. Mm -hmm. Because right? quite often he is. Mm -hmm. Overconfidence is what leads him to run for, and win actually, governor of Arkansas in 1978 at the infantile sounding age of what, he was 32 or 33? They called him the boy governor, which I yes. can't imagine saying with a straight face. Uh, no, Especially a kid from Arkansas. No. There is only one boy governor, and that is James. Boy George. Stephen Steve Mason. You are correct, sir. He became territorial governor of Michigan at like the age of like 17 or something. Maybe, but man, you jump over a couple minor things like uh, Oxford, like being the number one kid in class, like... Dodging the avoiding draft, the draft like avoiding the, the draft like, like well let's go back Hillary. further he is that abusive stepfather and a, like a very broken home in that sense and so a we're going origins yeah which he in reading more about his brother i found at least this is what bill clinton claims was that he had to he used to have to step in between his stepfather and his brother and mother during bouts of physical violence whether that's true or not unclear would be unsubstantiated but i think that's part of the myth he tries to craft is that he came from nothing and achieved everything, which is big headed in a Citizen Kane way. It's also whether or not it is true. But it's also a formational myth Obama repeats 
to a certain extent, uh, Biden repeats and even yeah. to, a you know, and again, in a weird, twisted way, Trump tries to reframe for his own good. But it's it is one of these like really enduring myths of American life, right? Like pull yourself up in bootstraps, sort of those stories. What are those Horatio Alger stories in like at like the turn of the century? Like these Ooh, are a very boy from home. Right. These Ooh. are very compelling myths. An abusive stepfather is the log cabin of the twentieth century. <laughs> kind of. And to a certain extent, he kind of did, didn't he? I mean, he definitely he definitely improved his situation a lot across his youth. So I think we can give him credit for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's clearly one of the most brilliant people yeah. that well, you can the find. closest the closest comparison I can think of, who I think is not significantly older than him is Chris Christopherson, who went through high school without shoes, was a Rhodes Scholar, studied Blake at Oxford, and then came back to great success. Is Bill Clinton as cool as Chris Christopherson? No. <laughs> Although I'd love to hear a counter-argument to that. Read my lips. No. Oh, this president is so boring. I want a president who's cool. Sounds like you kids need Clinton. Clinton? Clinton? That's right, Bill Clinton. The most extreme president you've ever seen. Whoa, he's playing saxophone on Arsenio? Heck yes! Look, he's on MTV. Mr. President, the world's dying to know, is it boxers or briefs? Usually briefs. <laughs> he's just like us. That's right, Mr. Clinton is totally cowabunga! Awesome! I wear underwear sometimes too. But that's not all. Remember the Rambo franchise? Oh, he put the hot damn in Vietnam. And Mr. Clinton is just like John Rambo. In as much as he opposed the Vietnam War. So did he fight or dodge the draft? <laughs> and how? That wasn't a yes or no. And do you cool kids like drugs? Heck, Heck yeah. yeah. Then give a listen to this. When I was in England, I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it and didn't inhale. Oh, wait. Did he try Potter, didn't he? Don't worry. It's all pogs. That doesn't mean anything. And do you slackers like Madonna? She's a total babe. A swing. Well, what about a president who's been plagued by accusations of sexual misconduct by multiple women? Oh, that just bums me out. Talk to the hand. So come on, young people. Get out and vote for Bill Clinton for president. And get ready for the most extreme presidency ever. Skateboard. I'm Bill Clinton, and I endorse this totally tubular message. What's up? Clinton is a saxophone player who is like, well, you know, I, I was interested in getting a musical career, but when I knew I wouldn't be John Coltrane, I was like, I'll just become president. James and Chelsea is, as adults, I apologize band, for doing Clinton. 
You're as adult band aficionados. How is Clinton as a sax player? How was he? He's I very like good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he was in the all the Arkansas All State Band as as a high school student. I actually I I could play a recording of that band. You know, I'm just thinking like what it must be like to be Bill Clinton when like first of all you're white trash, right? I mean, like this guy comes from from just nowhere, Arkansas, broken family. You know, certainly not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. But super smart, super talented. And so, like, just being able to, like, the confidence that it would give you, especially, you know, growing up where he grew up, where there's probably not a lot of people who would be able to compete with his talent and his intelligence. And I I do think that makes a difference, because I think if you grow up in in New York or Chicago, right, and you're like, oh, my gosh, there's like a hundred other smart kids in my school. There's a hundred other talented kids in my school. You don't necessarily think that, like, you're the smartest person on earth. You just think I'm all right. So is everybody else. But if you like you are twice as smart as everyone else you're going to school with, you might think you're the smartest person on earth. And and that would lead you, I think, to the conclusion that I can walk into a room and, and instantly take command. People are going to see I'm brilliant. People are going to see that I know what's going on. And that, that I think, is what causes him to, to have that confidence. But then I also think it kind of sows the seeds of his own destruction because then he thinks that he can figure out a way out of any situation. And therefore, there are really no limits to what he can do because he can do it all. You know, I don't think Bill Clinton is as corrupt or as shady as as the republicans played him as but it's also like he definitely like thought he could do it all and when he saw situations that he wanted to take advantage of he didn't hesitate because he thought he could explain his way out of it particularly involving women Mm -hmm. right well why wouldn't why gosh why wouldn't they want me Mm-hmm. The assumption because he has been given everything his whole life because he is a smart, suave, charming white man. Yeah. Which leads to an interesting question. Um, and, and maybe the answer is embedded in everything you just said. So he's that brilliant. He goes to Georgetown. He goes to Oxford. He meets Hillary the story is he was staring at her. I don't know why. So he I stared at her. Why. She was, he was a looker in, back in the, in the Yale day. library. Yeah. And she said, if we're just going to stare at each other, we might as well know each other's name. I'm Hillary Rodham. I'm a former Goldwater girl from Park Ridge. She probably didn't say that, but yeah. it would have been accurate <laughs> if she had. Yeah. Yeah, I think well, that's his account of it, that she right. came up to him. <laughs> That'll well, always be like which, that moment. Which I'm sure, I'm sure that's how that happened. <laughs> well all, all of which leads to the question why did they go back to arkansas i mean it's gonna yeah. be a pretty easy state he, to be governor of yeah he's the big fish he knows that that's a place where he can can use his his cultural connections and his understanding of the place to fuel his political ambitions you know, Illinois politics is a crowded field filled with many sunken ships. Arkansas politics, by comparison, is relatively green turf. And, you know, when you're the favorite son, you know, maybe that can play some dividends. I also think that his his relationship with Hillary is really interesting because I think Hillary provides for him a couple of things. One is 
a challenge, you know, to understand and to to seduce, if you will. And then I think it it also she provides him with a family connection, to, you know, to a, a prominent family. And that's right. That's the one thing that's missing from his resume. And so this is is an alliance uh, that certainly has its its practical aspects, but I think also has, at least in the beginning, its kind of personal intrigue that that is that is something that manages to hold his attention when other things, you know, wouldn't at this point. And presumably, I, like that say, uh, I really appreciate though, James, that you say it is an alliance and not a marriage. Mm -hmm. I think that's very telling. To compare like political standards, you know, from the 1930s and 40s versus the 1990s, because like no one ever really expected that Franklin and Eleanor were going to be like this postcard family yeah. that just like they, they, they never that was, like that was never an expectation that anyone had, at least for for them. Yeah, there was no leave it to beaver model of what like a nuclear family had to do. Right. And, and you know, FDR w w was the pater patrie. He was the father of the country, not the father of his children um <laughs> and <laughs> here's something we, we didn't know about Eleanor. Yeah, i'm like wait are we are we making claims to the paternity of the roosevelt children <laughs> i am so happy it's to complicated be considered one of fdr's children yeah i feel like they are expecting that this young couple with young kids is then going to fit this 1950s model of what a nuclear family is supposed to look like just on the national scale, a la the Kennedys. Um, and, and again, because it's it's like the young presidents that this is an expectation for. Mm -hmm. Nobody expects that Lyndon Johnson's family is going to be perfect. Like, everyone knows the dude is weird. Th people like Richard <laughs> Nixon, same thing. And, um, and, and James, it, I actually, when you're saying that, you act, more and more, I feel like that sort of like, um, hunky dory family right um expectation that americans have for their president that's not a 1950s thing right it's not a 60s mm -hmm. thing and it's not a 70s thing it's a 1980s religious right family moralism thing right i was like, gonna say because certainly i mean lord knows bill and hillary were attacked and attacked and attacked on it we we will definitely hear a version of it again with Barack and Michelle. Well, and I think the Whoa. thing the thing that makes the 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 Obamas so interesting is that they really are that family, right? right? Yeah. And this is the Republicans off so much that they are. What kind of governor was he? Handsome. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure where we're going with this. <laughs> I mean, well, um, when you run for president, yes, you will run on biography and myth, but there's often a political record too, isn't there? I mean, a lot. Of, he focused a lot on education reform. Yeah, education makes was makes sense. Arkansas is one of those states that's consistently on the lower end of education, so it's a thing that always needs work. My impression of his, uh, govern of his governorship in Arkansas was that he took a state that was like 49th in most in uh, most uh, most categories of you know personal welfare of wealth and education etc. And he took it from 49th all the way to 47th. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, think of what he's working against. Yeah, true. Also true. Yeah. Not a small feat. I, I think just in brief summary. 
he doesn't do anything massive. And then, you know, that's, he, he does, he managed to do a bunch of small things that are popular. Um, and that kind of is something that will kind of be in his political playbook forever. Oh, yeah. Um, is the, you know, okay, if I need to, to make a name for myself, I don't necessarily have the big idea. I've got all the little ideas uh, and we're going to do them all right in a row. And, you know, we're going to use all the ones that people like. Um, you know where he gets that? He gets that from Hillary because who did Hillary do her, I think, master's or doctoral thesis on? Saul Alinsky. Oh, and the whole yeah. idea of take victories, claim them, build that, build on them is Alinsky 101. Well, and I think a, an important part of what we see in his uh, governorships is he starts to build the sort of the the new Democrat neoliberal right. yeah, that's left what in the United, United States was he's you know he's running in the in the Reagan era being essentially leftist Republicans is is the uh, the strategy that that he yep. adopts and, and starts working in Arkansas yeah. conspicuously pro death penalty oh, yeah. oh like Sorry. small governments, welfare uh, reform, limited, mm-hmm. welfare reform you know, solved, limited yeah. social reform of like education and like some tax yeah. stuff. But, mostly but you bring like, up pro pro death penalty, very mm-hmm. tough on crime. This is kind of the start of Democrats having to do that. Yeah. yeah. But also choosing so, so to do we that. Have, we have to appeal to Reagan voters in order to win. We've talked about myths and self-building myths. You, you know, uh, Bill Clinton lost. And then he runs again and he wins, which we will hear about again with Obama. Obama, the, the one election Obama lost with uh, Danny Davis, uh, Clinton, Clinton also loses and then wins. And that, beca- that will certainly become a huge part of his myth, especially in the 92 Democratic primary. That's also true for W. He uh, he loses his first W loses his first election in Texas and then does not really again. Yeah, smooth sailing. Mm-hmm. And that's actually not something you hear a lot. You don't hear as much of in other stories that we've heard, but it does become a big deal. It does become a big deal, like the last three or four eras, which is even you know Biden losing a couple presidential runs before finally winning. So is there some reason why in the last 30 years there's something about being able to show that you can lose and come back? Why, you know, why does that why is that something that catches voters, I wonder? And this might be a rhetorical question, but I mean, I don't know if it's like necessarily something that catches voters or we're just kind of, you know, it's got a pattern bias like this mm-hmm this happens to exist and so now we're noticing it but mm-hmm. i i think that perhaps it shows um an ability to adapt right so it's like you you try something you fail and then you said okay that'll work but i'm smart i can figure it out and after i figured it out i mastered it and- americans respect resilience i think you're right James. yeah i would also say i think that presidents at least within my lifetime and this is the first one i remember but usually appeal in one of two ways either they're relatable or they're aspirational and if you fail and come back you're both go ahead sandy i'll just say he also he spent a lot of his governorship going national he made a national name for himself as governor by being i think he was like head of the governor's association American. So he's traveling around the whole country, meeting a lot of the other governors and taking 
national policies and and yeah. When did he give that overlong keynote address? That was pretty much his introduction to ADA. The American he's, ADA. Endorsing, he's endorsing yeah, Dukakis. Yeah. And that was great, never that way. would never happen again, would it? <laughs> never a problem again. So here we we also have someone who makes no bones about wanting higher office at some point, probably since he's when it was probably some little kid and he realized it might be something he could somehow do. Immortalized in the phrase that uh, when he registers a conscientious objector, I'm not sure. I think he sent the letter to his draft board saying, I hope this doesn't impact my political viability. Well, come on. He was president of student council at Georgetown. Like, he's practicing for the presidency, y'all. Yeah. Like, he, mm. he signs up for ROTC to get out of the draft and then doesn't show up for ROTC. Well, because he got to go to Oxford, so he didn't have to. But then the that's actually who he sends it to, by the way, is the officer who had helped him get into ROTC. Uh, you? James, is that the reason you think that Bill Clinton would have made a good Republican, that he was a draft dodger? um let's 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 get to let's get clinton in the white house here because that means dealing with the 92 election which means dealing with the 92 primary which in a lot of ways all pivots around new hampshire uh what was the exact narrative now he lost iowa was that to he was lost too- Iowa because of the first, and I believe the term that was used was bimbo eruption. And was and he lost that to Tsongas, right? Well, okay. Uh, yeah, okay, now, no. Let's, to, uh, let, let's take a Ar- Tom Harkin. Let's take Thank a you. couple. Okay, hold on. A few f- steps back. So yeah, George H.W. I need someone to explain the phrase bimbo eruption. Okay, hold on. Okay, so 1992, H.W. is clearly vulnerable and there's a whole, it's a cattle call uh, of candidates in 92, at least what, six, seven, eight, nine, something like that. And Clinton starts to get some, get a foothold, gets a foothold. I mean, he's, again, he's giving good speeches. He's able to stand out. And then as he gets to Iowa, yes, there was, that was the first reports of all of the extramarital affairs, hence the term bimbo eruption. That was Jennifer with a G, correct? Jennifer Flowers. Jennifer Flowers. Jennifer Flowers. Yes. It came out just before Iowa. That's where he lost. I think the expectation was he would not survive. But he goes to New Hampshire. That's the one song is won. But but he finishes second. And he calls himself the comeback kid. And goes down to, I think, the first Super Tuesday where there are a lot of Southern primaries. And, you know, that's that's the real risk there is giving yourself a nickname. That that almost never pans out for you. But he pulled it, but he does. But he pulled and it. What's, so, what's so interesting, really quickly, about the, the way that the Clintons address the controversy, right, is they address it together, right? Like, they are in the media... 60 minutes, I believe. Yes, yeah, like on Super Bowl Sunday, which there you go. Oh I mean, man, I didn't it. realize it was Super Bowl Sunday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so weird. They address it like together as a family, right? Which I think goes back to some of the comments we were making earlier about them as a couple, them as a, a family, and the expectations that America has for them. 
And like, I think also, that really matters. And also the people running his campaign, because I have to say, one of the unique things about the 92 campaign is that the people who ran his campaign, more so than in other campaigns, became stars and figures and personalities themselves. True. We're talking to Rage and Cajun. Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel, James Carville, Paul Begala. Axelrod. David Axelrod and George Stefan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. James Carville always makes me think of like an ice cream cake, and then I get disappointed because that's not what we're talking about. And so, as you get into the general election, the other things we sort of notice is that often candidates who come from behind find something unique that nobody else has and they run with it. And with Clinton, it's the youth vote. Being a little rascal. The little rascal. And again, that's where playing the sax on Arsenio Hall, doing the MTV interview, being young, picking another vital young uh, vice presidential candidate with a military background. By the way, with all of this, you have a floundering George H.W. Bush who doesn't know what a scanner looks like in a grocery store. And that little weirdo from Texas, Ross Perot. Yeah, and I know I said it in the H.W. episode, but I want to repeat. How uncharismatic must H.W. be that he won Desert Storm and then won the Cold War and then no one cared? Listen to our last episode on George H.W. Bush. So, so was Clinton sort of inevitable by nineteen by by ninety two? I mean, well, but... that you know, I think Tommy's point is good. Like, you know, if you look at and we talked about this with Bush, like you looked at his record, um, he should have a strong record to run on. And we've talked about kind of the yeah. the impact of the economy, um, which which had been faltering, and, and of course, like you know. But, people talk about like you know there's always this big swath of undecided voters that make up their mind in like the two hours in which they're going to the polls and that that oftentimes swings relatively close elections i don't know if this one was that close um but i i think that you start to see that that clinton's strength is kind of built in a number of parts and one of those parts was just kind of the baseline strength of the democratic party, which hadn't been enough to win very many elections, but it's not like, you know, even like Dukakis, it's not like if you look at the state by state races, he's losing 80 to 20. Right. And so there still was a lot of kind of Democrats out there who perhaps had been culturally turned off by some of the more liberal candidates who had been running in the eighties, who see Bill Clinton as more culturally affiliated with them. And, and and so they yeah right these these kind of we talked about blue dog Democrats coming back into the fold for Clinton. Then you have the youth vote, um, and then you have people whose economic disruption has made them mad at George H. W. Bush. And I think you you put all those things together, and it ends up being enough. Plus, with the weirdness of Ross Perot being out there, um, that that Clinton wins. And I forget what his I think it's like forty three percent. And that ends up being enough. Um, and also, the, he changes the map, right? And so this is all the other thing about that's weird about presidential elections is that he makes the kind of central deep south competitive um, because he's from there. Uh, and so then that means that, you know, H.W. Bush had to, had to pick off more Midwestern states and was just 
unable to do that. And so we've, we've got a Clinton presidency. So the Clinton presidency begins. And you have... said... Go ahead. I was just going to say, and he has, like he campaigned, in catchphrases. He governs in catchphrases. <laughs> there was, it's the economy stupid, and there was... <laughs> Don't ask, don't tell, because the 90s was the beginning of soundbite culture as exemplified. It was never a problem again. (laughs) And it was never a problem again. It was an era of catchphrases. Don't ask, don't tell the quintessential Clinton policy. Let's try to do something (laughs) that slightly moves things in the right direction and makes the least amount of people mad while setting up the potential for lots of harm to be done down the road. And it sounds like something you'd hear in a Seinfeld episode like this. I have long opposed governmental recognition of same-gender marriages, and this legislation is consistent with that position. This act confirms the right of each state to determine its own policy with respect to same-gender marriage and clarifies the purpose of federal law, the operative meaning of the terms marriage and spouse. I'm not signing this Defense of Marriage Act, Rob. You've got to sign the Defense of Marriage Act, Bill. Oh, do you think you're too pro-gay? Not that there's anything anything wrong with that. So it's better that voters think I believe in violating people's civil rights? It's not denying people civil rights. You're just telling gay people, no marriage for you. Rob, telling people no marriage for you is violating their civil rights. You'll be doing gay people a favor, Bill. Haven't you caused pain in your marriage? Of course I've caused pain in my marriage. Everybody causes pain in their marriage. It's the definition of marriage. So why do you want to let all those gay people get married so they can cause pain in their own marriages? Because they're still mad about don't ask, don't tell. What was wrong with don't ask, don't tell? It was a half measure, Rob. There's nothing wrong with half measures, Bill. I find half measures to be very underrated measures. Hi, Bill. Hi, Rom. Hey, Bill, you want to try getting single-payer health insurance passed again? Well, that'll cost a lot of political capital, Harry. So spend the political capital. It's a good idea. People will thank me. They'll call it Hillary Care. Hillary, maybe Bill should save his political capital. For what? He's only going to be president for eight years. Why not spend his political capital on Hillary Care? But what if there's a war or something? Then all the soldiers who come back injured can be cured thanks to Hillary Care. It's exactly why you should be spending your political capital. I just don't know if it's political capital worthy. Fine, you can save your political capital, Bill. You're really going to let him save his political capital? Sure, he could save his political capital as long as he promises to spend it on my Senate race when he leaves office. Guess I'm not master of my domain. Was that a moment of pain in your marriage, Bill? That was a big moment of pain in my marriage. Hey, people don't have pain in their marriages, Bill. They don't even have marriages. Lucky bastards. Where's that Defense of Marriage Act? We want to thank Jerry Seinfeld for licensing that clip to us. (laughs) Good on you, Jer. And the thing about Don't Ask, Don't Tell is he thought it would piss off a few people. It ended up enraging everybody. 
touchdown. Left well, hand I mean, right. That's that's how those things work, right? right. Like you know, you try to do thing something to uh, you, you you pick a controversial topic, you try to make as few people mad as possible, and you end up making everybody mad. I, mm-hmm. I succeeded doing that yesterday, actually, um, <laughs> and I was like outvoted. Like I didn't even get a second for my motion. Um, <laughs> Isn't that the worst, man? Yeah. Uh, and then Kenny, everyone's like, well, what happens? Kenny and seconds. I was like, well, the motion fails. So yeah, literally, like, you know what you didn't do? It. You know what you didn't do, James? Yeah. You didn't inhale. You didn't have uh, a catchphrase. Yeah. In honor of the Clinton administration, I will be here in California inhaling through the entire episode. <laughs> I will it's be less Andy. and less coherent. Okay, so another thing that uh, one of the biggest things Clinton campaigned on, which set the stage for a lot of things that happened, was national health insurance. Mm. And again, talking about, well, let's try to figure out a way to do this. The first thing he does is he puts Hillary in charge of it, which was kind of a fraught idea for a lot of different reasons. Then there is just the whole battle of what the hell do we do? Because whatever idea they had, they did not roll it out properly. There were all sorts of competing ideas from all sorts of factions within the Democratic Party. And that opens up. And the, it, mm-hmm. Right. And so th- th- this this initiative is really interesting because it's like, I think Clinton comes into the presidency. And while, yes, he's the catchphrase guy, you still have Clinton the great man. And so this is his like, attempt to kind of get the great man thing rolling and saying well johnson had social security fdr had or fdr had social johnson, security, had, medicare, johnson medicare. had medicare i'm going to be the one who finally creates a, a fully integrated healthcare system for the united mm-hmm. states and that will be a big win for everybody and it'll be something that'll say well you know clinton care is something that is helping millions of americans for generations to come and it probably would have putting Hillary in charge is interesting because I think that they presumed it turns out very wrongly that it would be difficult to politically attack the first lady, that there would kind of be a sense that, well, you can't just attack someone's wife. That's kind of not okay. Turned out it happened. Apparently it's okay. Right. But also overconfidence, right? Like you believe that they're not going to attack your wife, and then you set your wife up to be politically attacked. They mishandle it, and I think that it ends up leaving Clinton gun-shy politically for the rest of his administration, and he's just like, I'm never going to go there again. I'm never going to try to do something on that scale. We can't do it. We don't have the ability to sell this politically. We don't have the ability to actually manage the policy from a way that actually gets enough people on board to pass it. And in some ways, he's waiting for an opportunity to do something big because of external events that never comes. And and so then that kind of reduces him to, again, being being the governor president, the guy who's doing a bunch of small popular things and, and going around claiming big victories because he, you know, slightly reduced welfare benefits. Hooray. Yes. My memory of that time, Sandy and Joe, back me up if you remember, Hillary was pilloried Aww. from the time Bill was even nominated. Oh, yeah. I mean, not. I mean, from the time of the, the 60 Minutes interview, 
where she made the Tammy Wynette crack. It's like, I'm not some, you know, Tammy Wynette standing by my man. It was obvious that Hillary was a target from like March of 1992 onwards. So if Bill thought they weren't going to go after his wife, then Bill does not have the legendary political instinct we have always attributed to him. And also my impression at the time, based on Newsweek articles and excerpts from talk about small popular things, George Stephanopoulos's autobiography, the single payer health system was Hillary's baby from the beginning. And Bill was putting it forward on her behalf. And so, again, to go back to Saul Alinsky, one of the ways he talks about creating consensus, find an enemy, personalize it, repeat it. The right likes to go after Alinsky, but the right actually has used a lot of Alinsky's <laughs> tactics in very, you know, very effectively. And our, again, somewhat ironically, none more so than Hillary Clinton. Um, for those of you that were adults in the 90s, y'all remember Harry and Louise? God, yes. The couple in a series of ads created to say health and national health insurance is the worst thing that could possibly happen. It was the first time they, that the idiotic argument, keep government out of my Medicare, was effectively mm -hmm. advanced. And it was so effective, as I recall, there wasn't, they never got so far as to propose a bill in either house. And that laid the groundwork for, and again, the whole idea of let's make enemies, let's demonize the opposition, let's make ourselves the moral warriors. Enter Newt Gingrich. There's a sketch here. Uh-huh, there is. In 1948, Harry Truman attempted to create a health insurance plan for all Americans. His failure turned the American healthcare system into one that cares more about profits than about giving all Americans the ability to be treated without going bankrupt. Hmm. I like it, Sally. This is a good chance for this weekend's debate tournament. I don't know, Miss Sandy. No matter what I write, we seem to always lose. It's not because of your speeches. You know why we keep losing. Patrick and me are like oil and water. Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, sorry I'm late for practice. Did you read the speech I wrote for this week's tournament? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I was doing different homework. See? Patrick, if you would rather not be on the debate team... I, I want to be the best debater this school has ever produced. And I think that by approaching our speech in a different way... We can take the 1995 Central Northeastern Ohio Debate League by storm. You want to pay off the judges? Okay, you two. Can I show you and Sally this tape? This explains how we can do it. Sure. We just got a new VHS player in the classroom. Sometimes I dream that he Now I'm thirsty. I dream I knew. I dream I grew. Like Newt. What? What? If I could be like Newt. I wanna be like Newt. Newt. If I could be like Newt. Ew! Hello. This is Be Like Newt. I'm Newt Gingrich. 
And in this tape, I will teach you how, with the right words and the right way to use them, you too can be like Newt and win arguments that you have always lost. Patrick? No, no, really. He has some great points. Language matters, and certain words will make your speeches, press statements, and public announcements more compelling to listeners and viewers. You are about to see words and phrases tested through polling conducted by myself and my friend Frank Lutz. By making yourself the hero and your arguments morally superior to your opponents, making them sound evil and scary, your ability to win is limitless. Like any duel, these words will not help if they are not used. But if they are, you can indeed be like me. Here are the words. Oh, they're, 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 they're right, right there, right there. Uh, pause the screen so we can see them, Miss Sandy. Are you serious? Well, I took your speech and I reworked it a little with the words from the video, Sally. Uh-huh. Let's compare. Touchy, but I like what I did. Then You start. In 1948, Harry Truman attempted to create a health insurance plan for all Americans. Okay, so using Newt words, it goes, <clears throat> In 1948, Harry Truman failed to create a radical American health insurance plan for them. Patrick! Sally, give, give a little space. Uh, next sentence, Sally. His failure turned the American healthcare system into one that cares more about profits than about giving all Americans the ability to be treated without going bankrupt. President Truman's failure. See, you're using new words already, Sally. His failure made Americans sick of dealing with their health care system, feeding the greed of insurance companies who would steal money with red tape and self-serving traders who would allow normal Americans to go bankrupt. I... Yeah. Um... Right. I can't believe I'm going to say this. <laughs> I like it. Oh, God, I'm so ashamed of myself. See, Sally, even though I don't believe one syllable of this and I don't even understand most of it, I do know Newt Gingrich language works. It's taking something evil and kind of turning it on its head. Whatever it takes to win. Losing sucks. And one thing Newt is doing right now is winning. So how much of the rest of the speech did you rewrite? Oh, that was it. I, I figured if I give you the direction, you can do the rest. You, you can even borrow the tape if you want. And don't let it ever be said that I never helped this team win. Just don't make me vote for anything Newt Gingrich does. No, I don't even know what he does. But I know winning when I see it. My parents are going to have a fit. They'll think I actually do like Newt. Just tell them it's part of your research. And use headphones. So here comes Newt Gingrich, and Hillary becomes a personalization of everything wrong with yeah. liberal America, because they they made her sort of the personification of liberal America. But so much more. I mean, there are a series of tapes that Newt gets produced and sent to wannabe congresspeople that literally talks about, here's the language that you need to use. And that was worked up by a name that we're going to see a lot of in the next 30 years, Frank Luntz. And again, it's all about 
We are the virtuous side. We are the, the side of the patriots. They are evil. They will destroy you. Talked about use these words all the time. He's the first one to tell people, to tell his politicians, don't appear at the same time with your Democratic colleagues on shows like Meet the Press and Face the Nation. He's the one that said, stop having beers with candidates. And that's also where there's this former sportscaster turned talk show jock that we don't remember as much anymore, but his name of Rush Limbaugh. Who that guy you sold me all that uh all that Vicodin? Yeah, that dude <laughs> kind of makes sell helps sell the contract with America. And in 1994, two years into Clinton's presidency, for the first time in what 40 years, the House goes Republican. Now what? what so happens? you know, I think that it, your your story, Joe, is is, is basically accurate. And, but it has, there's so much more to it than that, because it's very difficult to have a functioning democracy when you believe that the other side present, you know, presents an existential threat. And I think that that is, unfortunately, it, it does happen to be very effective at mobilizing your supporters politically. And I think that one of the the, the insights is that you're not, winning over the undecideds you're mobilizing your base of voters and when that kind of data starts to come through that says you know what it's not it's not winning the undecideds it's turnout that really changes the messaging and the approach and we're still in an era of very low turnout you know especially for for republicans but i think also because republicans learned with clinton that you know, the blue dog Democrats were not voting for Reagan because they were necessarily like it was cultural. It wasn't necessarily economic. And so they still have this economic agenda, but they want to present it in cultural and moralistic terms because that is what's going to resonate. And, and in 1992, at least it was it was effective. Well, you so know, Paul 19... mentioned... Go ahead, Sandy. 1994 election, not 92. Yeah, yeah. Also, my, my mistake. What, what Clinton said, what Gingrich did that was unique was made it the midterms a national election. Mm-hmm. Whereas because it wasn't a presidential election, it was like 50 individual local elections. You voted for your current congressman, maybe a senator or two. But this was the first time Gingrich rounded up everybody and says, no, this is a national referendum and we're all going to lump all the Republicans. And so that changed the pattern of how they did congressional and midterm elections, too. Can I go on for a little bit now since we've uh, since we've got we've got Newt in office, we've got the contract with America, we've got the rise of what the hell was the name of the group that Ralph Reed Christian Coalition. Uh, Focus Moral on majority. The family. Yeah, Focus yeah, on the family. Focus on the family, Christian Coalition. They were um, powerful for, uh, and in that they were inevitable for about five months and then it all collapsed because 1995, in all honesty, was one of the scariest years in American history, thanks to something that happened in April and a couple of things that happened in November. Newt Gingrich 
Okay, Yitzhak, okay, we have the Murrah Federal Building bombing Oklahoma in City. Oklahoma City. You young people perhaps may, may have seen it on television quite. I, uh, I remember that, yeah. Galvanized my political consciousness. And the dangers of extremism were also demonstrated quite uh, explicitly in November of that year with the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin in Israel. Rabin, Rabin was was a partner and a friend of Clinton, and that's what finally lit a fire under him, thinking, I can't let these bastards win. I can't let the rad radicals and extremists win. I cannot surrender the uh, rest of the 20th century to that. And on the way back from Rabin's funeral, he gives Newt Gingrich uh, kind of a lesser seat on Air Force One, and being a petty little son of a bitch Gingrich shuts down the government as a way of getting back at Clinton because so, if you live by creating an enemy you can die by creating an enemy and unfortunately yeah. the seeds of his Clinton's triumph also contained the seeds of his destruction because during the 24 hours that the White House was in operation during the uh, government shutdown he ordered a pizza to be delivered to the Oval Office that was brought in by a certain intern, but we'll get to her. Mm -hmm. Ooh. From, from a political perspective, though, that shifts the attention to 96. Going in, I really didn't get the sense that Bill ever was in any real danger. Nor did I. This is the first election I have a memory of. There was a whole stack of very old, creaky Republicans for all the faults we talked about with the Democrats running for president, one of the things Republicans always used to do, again, until Trump broke the mold, was there were certain politicians whom for whom it was their turn. In 1996, it was Bob Dole's turn. And who is the only person seriously threatening him? Pat Buchanan. Oh. And, and then and Ross Perot comes back. Sample is that. And a story. The sequel. Oh, yeah. And if I recall, that election was called by like 1130 Chicago time. There was just <laughs> absolutely no doubt. There were things Clinton was were running on, most of which involved the economy going really well, because that was where, I mean, Chelsea, you mentioned it, this is where the world started to get digital. People started to get home computers. People started to get the internet. And, and what the dot-com boom, the peace dividend. Because yeah. a lot of property released by the military that were was auctioned off. Uh, it's why we have satellite TV. Those used to be all strictly set, strictly military uh, bands. And they well, didn't, didn't Clinton pursue like speeding up the internet? I remember this being a talking point. And also- Right after El Gore invented it, yes. Right. So- Clinton does a couple, uh, two things regarding the internet that I think are really important. The first is he provides extended funding for low-income people to be able to have home internet, which, right, is still a really important provision today. Mm -hmm. But perhaps even more importantly, he updates um, copyright law for the first time by creating the, what is it, the DCMA, the Digital Copyright Millennium Act. Something like that, yeah. And DCMA is still the, the copyright standard that we mm -hmm. live in today. And Paul, you mentioned Al Gore. 
Um, Al Gore had a pretty central role in 96 in a couple different ways. Now, you mentioned the whole Al Gore invented the internet meme. He actually headed the commission that was in charge of taking all of these former military assets that were no longer needed thanks to us winning the Cold War and privatizing them again. That's why we have satellite TV. That's why we have that's why we have cellular networks. That's why we have the internet. This is the ARPANET. Uh, that's it why it was just I, inartfully phrased on Al's part, right. as were so yeah. many millions of other things. Correct. I do not know whether it is true or not. Therefore, it can't and shouldn't affect the larger long-term strategic interests of the American people in our foreign policy. Hey, look, Hillary, I'm up in the polls. It's all thanks to Dick Morris's triangulation strategy. Love the dick. Hate the dick. I'm going to be reelected because of the dick. But don't you need funds? Gore is out raising funds. Why would you let Gore raise funds? Why shouldn't I let Gore raise funds? Because he's going to do something weird and illegal. Of course he's going to do something weird. But it still might be legal. How are we going to know if it's legal? We'll ask the controlling legal authority. Guess what, Bill and Hillary? I just invented the bridge to the 21st century. I'm going to call it the Internet. You didn't invent the Internet, Gore. Oh, didn't I? Then how did I just talk people all over the world into making contributions for Bill's re-election? Gore, you can't take contributions from foreign sources. The control and legal authority doesn't allow it. There is no control and legal authority, Bill. I told you he'd do something weird and illegal. It's not illegal yet. He can give back the contributions. I can't give the contributions back, Bill. It would be an insult to all those nice Buddhist nuns. What Buddhist nuns? There are no Buddhist nuns. There are Buddhist monks. That doesn't mean there are Buddhist nuns. Then how do you explain this? Come on in, ladies. See, I told you there are Buddhist nuns. We don't know they're Buddhist nuns. Of course they're Buddhist nuns. They're bald. Why does being bald make them Buddhist nuns? Why would they be bald if they aren't Buddhist nuns? Fine, they're Buddhist nuns. How much funds do these Buddhist nuns donate for? Funds? These Buddhist nuns aren't donating funds. That would be too materialistic. They're donating a mantra. Serenity now. Serenity now. Serenity now. Love the mantra. Eat the mantra. I know, did you have a provocative question to get us into the economics discussion, Paul? Because if you don't, I might. Ooh. Uh, I, I yield the floor, Joe. Okay, get ready for it. Bill Clinton ends his term with a surplus. The first one in a million, I don't know how long. Million years. An unmitigated success. I mean, I there was probably some mitigation. It's not a failure. Macroeconomic theory 101. When the economy is running well, that's the time to try to pull back on your government spending and increase taxes. And when the government, the economy is doing poorly, that's the time to spend a lot, to borrow a lot, and to, to run up your, your debt. Because generally speaking, one, interest rates are low, so the debt is cheap. And two, it 
you're, you're you're pulling in the other direction, right? So if the economy is, you know, in a depression, you want to pick it up, right? You want to give it some caffeine. If your economy is one running all over the place because it's, you know, too hot and you've got inflation, that's when you want to kind of pull it back in. The economy of the 19, late 1990s is not necessarily running too hot. There's not really a whole lot of inflation and interest rates throughout the period stay relatively low. Um by historical standards, but it still was, you know, certainly not in anything like a depression. And so trying to, um, you know, was this the right time to try to balance the budget? A hundred percent it was, and he does, you know, just having that one year of, we got to write a positive figure instead of a, re you know, negative figure doesn't really matter in the long run. And clearly having run almost nothing but debts for like, 60 years and the economy has not come crashing down because of it might tell us something about if that's actually significant or not. Um, but I think it does solidify the yeah. Democratic Party as the fiscal responsibility party. That's what they're known for, right? Well, <laughs> you know, you'd like to think it is it is true that generally speaking, the debt has not increased as much under Democratic presidents as under Republican presidents, uh, although Biden might kind of be one of the first ones to really push that in the other direction but again i'd like my my overall economic point would be for all that we talk about the national debt it really doesn't matter um right. you know, the, the, the countries that have big national debts for the most part are developed countries it's like it's japan it's italy now they have reasons for their debt being as large as they are and there are perhaps in the extreme and when you don't have the natural economic advantages that the united states does ways that a big debt can hurt you, we're not there yet. But anyways, that aside, the economy, yeah. the late 1990s was kind of the last time we really saw productivity growth. Why productivity growth happens is not always fully understood. Our best guess is that it's a combination of globalization, which pushes down average you know, unit costs of things, and then the kind of reassignment of domestic labor into more productive spheres. And then it is the rise of the internet and communications technologies, allowing kind of a new level of intercommunication, smoothing out supply chains. And um, of course, everyone started drinking a lot of Starbucks coffee since one opened <laughs> on every single corner and being more caffeinated, they got, they got more stuff done. Yes, yes. The the increase, uh, the coffee craze of the 90s was definitely a leading cause. An expansion of, of, of cable news, thanks to the invention of Fox News, although that has other um, issues. <laughs> but and, and so does Bill Clinton have anything to do with any of this? No, not really. Maybe the free trade stuff a little bit. But ultimately, the result is an increase in per person wealth for most Americans in the late 1990s. And it's one of the best booms that we've had and really the last big boom where we've seen average wages really increase in, in, in a real scale. I agree with everything that James has said because he is the economics person and I am not, right? Like this is being the 90s were a really great time to be an American worker. It's a period of low inflation, low employment, not a lot low of unemployment, really low, not like a lot a, of political upheaval, right? A really low poverty rate, but the one thing that I will say is this is also, and we talked about it a little bit in the 70s and 80s, but especially in the 90s, this is really where we see 
um, income inequality growing, right? The disparity between upper class and lower class really growing. So, so yes, wages on average, median household income is growing, but it's growing faster in in upper, the upper class rather than um, in our blue collar workers. Um, and so that is like one little like, you know, pin in James's balloon that I do want to put. It doesn't pop the balloon, but it, it right? It, mm-hmm. it dents the balloon. It, I don't know. 1990s to me, in particular, the late 1990s represents the last moment in American history of general optimism. Um, right. You know, with with the possible, the, the possible, like the for some, the first like two months of the Obama presidency. But really, the election like, itself, I would throw in. But I think if you asked most people in the late 1990s, if you felt like things in the future were going to be good, they would say yes. And I think that that was reflected in in the culture. I think it's the last time that you really saw in a, a major cultural interest in futurism. And there's always the joke about like, well, like the 90s was the period of like purple and teal. And people decided <laughs> like purple and teal were like the colors. But it's like the colors that had, had like not been used for things before. And so Also like, the colors of Windows 95. Mm-hmm. And Nickelodeon, cool yeah. Nickelodeon was orange, but you better believe that their complementary colors were purple and teal. <laughs> yeah. You can buy stock was was part of that too. Like this optimism about like you can put money in the stock market and you can become a capitalist An investor, and you too can enjoy this massive engine of wealth that we have in this country. And the other thing, James, that I'll say because I already have mentioned some environmental stuff right, as the good environmental historian that I am. But your your comment about optimism and looking towards the future, this is also the era of the Kyoto Protocol, right? Like thinking, truly believing that we can stem the tide or even turn back global warming mm-hmm. and climate change. Like, I, I think we are past that thinking at this point. But boy, to be a person living in the age of the Kyoto Protocol, we're like, and, and humans can do how- anything. Governments were able to put their heads together and yeah. come up with a common sense solution to the ozone thing and then have it actually work. Yes. And then say, well, we could solve that problem. We're not talking about blowing up every factory in everyone's country. We're talking about a little nudge here and there, a few market-based solutions to try to discourage the use of carbon yep. will do the trick. Yeah, there, I think there was there was optimism that... that yep. Climate change was something that could be addressed yep. through policy action. Right. Um, and especially I and I think that kind of thinking really influences, right, the the call for, well, we only need to, you know, lower carbon emissions by three percent. And at mm-hmm. that point we're like, three percent, we can do that. Yep. Easy. Yeah, yeah, you Are you guys going to transition us from like good policy conversation to talk about gender stuff? Scandal. Oh, yeah. can get this in clean. Scandal, um, baby, Audrey, scandal. Tawdry gender stuff. Is it in in you know keeping with Chelsea's uh, apparent reluctance? Is it necessary? Because I can't think of a single incident that's been analyzed more than the Clinton impeachment, more than Monica Gates. Honestly, if we're going to talk scandals and we're going to talk the 90s, before we even get to Monica, we got to talk about OJ. Ooh, 
Do we though? I'm actually yeah. kind of excited for this. Oh, I'd like to though. I, I, I don't know if we, we need to, but do. I think it'd be fun. I think we kind of do. Fun? At least a little bit. Fun. It'll be fun. Let's, let's uh, talk yeah. about presidents. Look, I'm sorry I consider this fun. It's just kind of a thing that happened when I started to watch TV and it was all over TV. What did you think was going to happen to me later in my adult life? And, and honestly, you know, again, we've been talking about economically generally okay, politically generally okay. Well, you got to There's a reason those two scandals kind of captured us for different but perhaps parallel reasons. And, and Paul, if we're talking about fuel efficiency bad? standards, this is a good time to plug the Ford Bronco. <laughs> it works. That's all I'm going to say. It works. It has worked. Sorry. Okay. What do, what do O.J. Simpson and John Elway have in common? The Ford Bronco. Slow white Bronco. <laughs> Here we go. A very 90s joke, kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so to Maybe me, we the, can the pe- OJ can we- thing mm-hmm. is 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 evidence of the ephemeralization of politics. It, not that you know, for crying out loud, there's the Dreyfus affair in the 1870s, which was just the stupidest thing that anyone has ever talked about. Um, podcast, but XYZ was pretty dumb too. You know, oh God, I, I um. These ones are are up there, but the Dreyfus Affair still has them all beat. There are periods in history where we talk about, like, actual policy, like, people have differences about, like, this is the way the country should go. No, this is the way the country should go. And then this was not one of those times. And so instead, we argued about whether someone who obviously killed his wife had killed his wife. And, And it becomes this whole thing about, like, there's a racial dynamic, and there's, and, and, like, like, all those things are true. Like, everyone is right about oj were the police racist 100 percent. did he still kill his wife yeah almost certainly he did they framed a guilty man there's (laughs) it it doesn't really matter right like whether he did or didn't it doesn't impact you right you're not going to jail for it you know you're you don't have to pay his legal fees we are arguing about this not because we have a real stake in the outcome but just because we're going to argue about it, because it allows us to identify our tribal identity. Yep. What That's we, what like, makes it so appealing to Americans. It's for free, and you can watch someone's life be destroyed. And, white yes, Americans. That's true, for white Americans. White it's Americans. it's all and, the fun that reality TV will bring the decade after it happens. Uh, so i guess this is my question and i I feel like i have to ask this do you like and and maybe like everyone can just kind of say their little like one sentence opinion does the monica Lewinsky scandal impact your overall evaluation of bill clinton as the president and the person for me, I'm yes gonna yes. say, yeah, I'm going to say it at least complicates or impacts my judgment of him as a person. Probably as a president, but I don't know. I, I think it's because we've watched other presidents' personal lives affected, and I'm like, in comparison, this isn't as bad. That's not a great way to judge, but uh, uh, for me, the jury's out on the president part. Patrick? Throwing people under the bus here, Joe. Just choosing names. Uh, Well, I think 
if anything, it's pretty much the main thing I know about Bill Clinton as a person. So there's that. Uh, I don't know that it impacts his legacy as a president in any real capacity, except for the fact that it makes him one of the presidents who was actually brought to an impeachment trial. Uh, I mean, I think over the past however the hell many episodes we've done of the show, uh, more often than not, you know, a president will have the scandalous skeletons in their closet that sometimes escape into the public eye. I don't know that it generally affects their ability to do the job. Joe? As a person, absolutely. As a president, probably not, because another term that we have not mentioned yet that definitely came up during Clinton, compartmentalization. Uh, And Clinton clearly had the ability to do that. I think his record is certainly ambivalent, certainly as a Democrat. I see it. I think we we see that ambivalence still playing out in a lot of ways politically, some of which I do think was set up by the impeachment, which I think was as corrupt as could be. I'll agree with that. And because I was going to ask the old, was Clinton a good president or not? I don't, I mean. Which uh, I think is a better question. Which Sorry. is a which is a tougher question, and I yeah, you know I now think it's a tougher question to answer because there was definitely good and bad. I understand a lot of the political choices he made. I do think you also have to tie Hillary in with all of this in a lot of ways. While she is certainly her own woman, they said we're a package. So certainly those two personalities have been the two most dominant personalities aside from Reagan for better and for worse. So it's complicated. <laughs> and I- Sandra and then James, and I think we're done. Do I think that it impacts him, I mean, any more than I thought it impacted Harding or Johnson, Kennedy, or any of the other presidents that um, throughout history always had Trump, Sexual Roosevelt, yeah. Buchanan, but it's cool he wasn't married. <laughs> they were just bosom friends. Jefferson, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's probably a bigger pile of presidents who didn't have sexual scandals versus the ones that, you know, lived pious lives. So is that part and parcel of the kind of people who want to be president? Is it part and parcel of being entitled and being in a position of power where you feel like, you know, you can have whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want? I mean, that's... Good funkadelic song. Gosh, I think that's such a good point, Sandy, especially like if you think back to our first episode and talking about Washington and this sort of like myth of like, oh, I do not seek power, like power just comes to me. Um, (laughs) Right. And we've seen that we've seen presidents say that like over and over and over again. And truly, like, y'all are happy to be president. Like, (laughs) in fact, like you you ran for it. You you could have just said no. 
people who seek the presidency, even if they say that they don't seek power, like they take advantage of power when it suits them. Yeah. James, bring us home. So I I, I like I was literally like pulling my hair out thinking about this. With the exception of Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton is the first living president that we've covered. And and for for me and for some of the other um contributors here, the first president in our living memory. And I think that the issue that I'm having is is Bill Clinton of the present or the past? And yeah. as someone who is still involved in, in politics in and you know, obviously with Hillary running as recently as seven years ago. We cannot quite consign them to the past, even though that the era in which he was president now was definitely a different era in many ways culturally. And so in some ways, if we talked about Clinton as a historical president, I might be inclined to overlook the, the Monica thing and say, okay, well, sure, that happened, but let's look at his accomplishments the same way that we have kind of overlooked some of the things that the other presidents have done. We've discussed them, but then when it came time to like evaluate their legacy, we didn't talk about that as much. But if Clinton is of the present and is therefore an exemplar for the way someone ought to act as president and ought to act as an exemplar of how people in power should act, then I'd be more inclined to, you know, say, wow, that degree of misuse of power in a predatory way is disqualifying, is not the kind of person I would want leading an institution that I was associated with. And and so I think that, that that's where it, it gets me is that that Bill Clinton's presidency now stands on the precipice of the present and the past. And and perhaps as as that moment recedes and, and he recedes farther into the past, that will change how we evaluate him. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part, for which I am solely and completely responsible. (laughs) Bill, Newt says if you don't sign this legislation, he's going to tell Hillary about you and the intern. So what if he does, Rom? I did not have sexual relations with that intern. I just slipped her a cigar. Was it south of the equator? Yes, it was south of the equator. Bill, anything south of the equator is sexual relations. But it depends on what the meaning of is is. The meaning of is is is. Not if it's in quotes. Then is is isn't. I didn't say is in quotes. I said is in italics. Is in italics isn't is. Is in italics is maybe. Well, Newt is going to be here soon. Bold is. Newt doesn't deserve an is. He doesn't even deserve an is. He deserves an apostrophe. Newt's going to be here soon. Was someone addressing me in absentia? Hello, Newt. Is the lovely Hillary at home? I have some information which is going to be of great interest to her. No, it is going to be of great interest to her. That is what I said. Exactly. We say it is, you say it is. Only Hillary can tell us if it is of great interest. Hey guys, what is all this racket? Was that in all caps is? That was totally in all caps is. 
Dearest Hillary, you look so lovely today that I hate to break your heart with news about a certain intern who... I can't do this anymore. It is too long. Just tell your stupid story about the stupid intern and die already. Such rudeness. I'm not the one who stuck a cigar in an intern, and everyone's treating me like the bad guy. Where's the outrage? Where's the decency? Where's... <laughs> Bill, did you really stick a cigar in an intern? Yeah, I did. So, is she cigar-worthy? I won't say she is. I won't say she is. I won't even say she is. For the sake of our marriage, let's just say she is. I'm speechless. I'm without speech. Now, this is ridiculous. Not is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. What did you want me to do? Lie? Just remember, Bill, it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> Wow, we get back to the end. We've so with that, like I said, we end the 20th century, which is great because hey, 21st century, new, bright, exciting. Oh boy, because we get thank to you, Bill. Uh, babies, yes. So, our next president will be crazy, controversial, and the catalyst for the little theater company that helps us to do this thing that we are still doing. George, only one initial. W. Bush. Next. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bocola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on Simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trinet Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.